Well, the big question I want to know is if they really accepted Jeremy into their family, did they give him a bathrobe? Hello world, is a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who left the house on their banana seat bike and didn't come home until the streetlights came on. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. Today, we will be saving our favorite family from Sacramento, the Bradfords. So pull that pop top from your Pepsi light and settle in as we reminisce about Eight is Enough. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. Okay, guys, I'd like to play a little game of make-believe with you. Are you up for that? Love it. Always. Yes, I am. So I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine you're 11 or 12 years old, and it's a warm, sunny day. You find yourself singing, I think I'll go for a walk outside, the summer sun's calling my name, and you head out the door. While strolling down a tree-lined street, the coolest car you have ever seen stops you in your tracks. It's a dark green vintage convertible MG, and the car is parked in front of a big white colonial house where a young boy, maybe six or seven, is dribbling a basketball in the driveway. As you admire the car, you hear the front door open, and one of the cutest guys you've ever seen, with brown curly hair, waves to you and welcomes you into the home's green carpeted foyer. A girl with long brown hair is chatting on the telephone in the front hall. She nods, smiles your way. Just then, a balding man emerges from a set of double doors on your right. He motions for you to follow him and leads you into the kitchen, where you're greeted by five more family members sitting around a large rectangular table. The man says his name is Tom, and these are his children. David, the oldest and a construction worker, is also super good looking. Next is Mary. She looks pretty serious and is evidently a medical student. Joni has this longish Tony Tennille-style haircut, and she is the family's aspiring actress. Susan sports a long red hairstyle and is an athlete and the family's adventure seeker. The blonde with hot curlers in her hair is Nancy, the wishful model. Tom says you've already met Elizabeth and Tommy, and then he gestures to the driveway, to the boy that's out there playing basketball with his bowl haircut. He says his name is Nicholas. You look toward him, and there you see a plate of homemade wishes on the kitchen windowsill. There's a plate of homemade wishes on the kitchen windowsill. There's a plate of homemade wishes on the kitchen windowsill. And it is enough to fill our lives with love. You guys, you can't hear that without singing it. I know it's true. I know. I love that song. But you guys it's the know best. What? It is. But it was not the first theme song for Eight is Enough. That was 
Australian instrumental, and we heard that for the first time on March 15, 1977, when the pilot episode aired on ABC. And at that time, we met the Bradfords, but actually not all the Bradfords that we came to know and love, because some of the characters would be recast before the series started. And do you guys have any idea who those characters were? There were three of them. It would have been, um, well, in the pilot, did you guys know that Grant Goodeve was not David? It was Mark Hamill. That is crazy. Isn't that insane? And I don't know how I feel about that because I really am in love with Grant Goodeve. It doesn't work. Here's the thing, though, with him is that when you watch the first episode, had you never seen another episode, he would have worked just fine. Yeah. But now everything we know. So if you watched it then, it was fine. But now he's only Luke Skywalker. And that's actually why he left because he had the opportunity to do Star Wars. And Star Wars actually was released when Eight is Enough was released. So At the same he, time. Same, like the exact same okay. month, I think. And so he left to do Star Wars and then they brought Grant Goodie in. So, you know, had had we never That's known any swap. had we never known Star Wars or never known yeah. we would have probably thought Mark Hamill made a fine David. I actually I'm gonna disagree because I think Grant Goodie is perfect. So I'm just <laughs> I'm just gonna let it lie. We're there. not disputing I like the fact Luke that Grant Skywalker. I like Luke Skywalker, but Grant Goodeve is perfect in his little puffer vest and with what, but, the 70 stripes on it. Oh, for sure. But wasn't it also in our Ice Castles discussion that it was Robbie Benson who had also auditioned <gasps> yes, for Luke Skywalker? For Luke so Skywalker. look at this big weird triangle could have happened. If it's Robbie like Benson had gotten Luke Skywalker, then Mark Hamill would have always been David yeah. and we would have never known the joy to watch of Grant, Grant Goodeve. Goodeve. And we wouldn't have gotten seasons. a plate of homemade wishes on we the kitchen windowsill. You're right, because yeah. he sang it starting mm-hmm. in season That's three. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yes. Well, it certainly wouldn't have been eight is enough without one of the recasting uh, jobs, which was recasting Tommy. He originally, Tommy was not Willie Ames. I mean, come on, would I Seriously. even watched the show? No, 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 no. I thought and that, that first was... kid, no offense to you, first kid, because yeah. he's probably a 55-year-old man now. I'm sure you're very successful selling real estate someplace. But <laughs> I, but Tommy, Tommy was a little miniature sex symbol. He was a tiger beat dude. Mm-hmm. And that could have really made the show go. Well, it could have been the 55-year-old real estate agent. He could have turned, look what he lost. No. He like, no, no, he was a dork no. when I've gone he was, back. He, was, he was not tiger beat material. Yeah. He was well, not and same with the other, the third recasting, who was Nancy, who the first oh, Nancy, yeah. if you watch episode one, she's a little wet bread. I mean, she's not that exciting. <laughs> Wait, wet bread? Or yeah, white bread. bread? Wet bread. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> you know, just a <laughs> little just soggy piece of wet bread. <laughs> She doesn't have really a personality. She's not in a ton of scenes. Right. But I know there's one where they're all sitting on the parents' bed, and you're like, oh, that's Nancy. And you're like, hmm. Because, you know, come starting in episode two, you I mean, at least I did, you looked forward to seeing Nancy. She was sparkly. Yeah. You know, yeah. she had mm-hmm. a personality. And the, again, if the original Nancy is listening, we are sure <laughs> you are a wonderful mother. You probably, you know, do a great job teaching yoga somewhere. Mm-hmm. And you love your toothpaste you. commercial. We are proud of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So we can't have this discussion without talking about one of the biggest recastings of all from season one to season two. Mm-hmm. Because we forget that there wasn't always an Abby, mm-hmm. right? When we think of it as enough, we think about Abby. But Abby is the stepmom. And the truth is that in the first season, there was 
an actual mom, a bio mom, Joan. Joni is named after Joan. Joan was played by Diana Highland. And many people don't remember this because she only appeared in four episodes. She actually died on March 27th, 1977 at the age of 41. And when did you say the show premiered, Carolyn? Well, the first episode was March 15th. So two weeks after the show premiered, Diana Highland had mm-hmm. already died. And mm. she um, she came to us already relatively well-known because she'd been in a lot of soap operas. She'd been in some movies. Um, she'd been in Peyton Place. But no, most notably, in 1976, she won an Emmy for playing John Travolta's mom in The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. So... Um, Let's just go there. She's mm-hmm. playing John Travolta's mom, and they, of course, become mm-hmm. lovers. Yes. They become but you, lovers. What, 20 year age difference, right? Oh, yeah. I think, or more. I think so. Or more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She played his teenage son. She played his teenage son. Mm-hmm. And so at um, and so at the time of her death, John Travolta was her was her partner. Mm-hmm. And he was crushed. Yeah. And I mean, he was yeah. like, he was he was devastated and it was, it's, it's heartbreaking to think that he lost the first love of his life to breast cancer. And then he just recently lost his wife and the mother of his children Mm -hmm. to breast cancer Mm -hmm. as well. He had to live through that terrible disease twice. Uh, Mm -hmm. You guys, I have um, a quote from Dick Van Patten um, just to honor Diana Highland because it was so tragic. And this even, sadly, I think it's going to make it more tragic, but he was doing an interview And he, Dick Van Patten said this, he said, we started shooting in January of 1977 and she was complaining about a backache, but she didn't say it was more than that. She found out a week before we started shooting that she had terminal cancer. She was an amazing, brave girl. Everyone found out during the filming of the fourth episode, she had to go to the hospital and her boyfriend, John Travolta came and took her. And then she called us to the hospital and told us, look, the backache I had been complaining about is much more serious. They say I have only a few weeks to live. Oh, I hear there are remissions. Weeks. I am still going to stay with the show. Maybe I will beat this thing, she said. Oh but two God. and a half weeks later, she was dead. Two, oh. so, the, so the cast learns that she has mm-hmm. cancer, and two and a half weeks mm-hmm. later, she's mm-hmm. dead. Mm-hmm. That is oh. absolutely tragic. And then he says, Dick Van Patten goes on to say about John Travolta, because, you know, everybody at the time, it was a scandalous um, romance. It, yeah, it was. For sure. Mm-hmm. But he, Dick Van Patten says, in the beginning, when I found out about their romance, I was sort of leery because she was much older. But he is a terrific man. He has a lot of character. And it was a nice romance. When they were together, they never stopped talking. They were in awe of each other, and he took her death very, very badly. It was just awful. He was trembling. He never left her side. He never left the bed. He sat with her in his arms the whole time. That guy's had a lot of tragedy in his life. So much. And you know what? I'm not a fan of his, but after I read that, I felt felt differently toward, you know, just what he's endured and then um, just having to have – I don't like him for some other fundamental (laughs) types of reasons, but just what a tragic, what a tragedy. And Mm -hmm. for all those kids in the cast, too, to have to have gone through that um, must have just been Well, and then they have, so they have to deal with it personally, but then they also have to deal with it on the show. So that was awkward, I remember, as a viewer. So she doesn't, she does die on the show, but they don't write her death Mm -hmm. into the show. And so do you guys remember, like, there isn't an episode where they say mom died or anything Mm-mm. like that, do they? Mm-mm. No, and so it's do just they, assumed. So she, she, they say she's away. So episode, I think it's 
the first one she's not in is episode five. Okay. And they just say she's away because also it happened so suddenly they couldn't write it in. They couldn't, I mean, I guess wow. they could have just said, mom had a terrible car accident. Yeah. But they had, um, they just say she's away. And so then I think it's the last, because it's a very short first season. Mm-hmm. I think it's only eight episodes, maybe 10, maybe. Because eight is so then, <laughs> <laughs> I'm high-fiving Put-o-pum. you through my screen. Yeah. <laughs> we love so, um, they just don't mention it, the final three episodes. They just, they just don't They just it. don't mention it. But when they come back for season two, they do. And what, um, in episode 11, oh, so it's 10, because it's episode 11. Okay. And then they start off right away in season two um, by having um, Betty Buckley come in as Tommy's tutor because he breaks his leg playing, you know, their their weekly game of football. And that and, season, that's the first episode of the second season. Mm-hmm. The and tutor comes to the house. They brought her in right away, okay. and they they fast forward this romance between yeah. them. Within six episodes, they're married. But you and still haven't do- learned how she's died or anything. No, they don't no. Even- you do you do a lot in this courtships in those first six episodes. He refers. I like recently his wife watched dying. them again, and you do you hear? Um, oh, it's heartbreaking. Um, and I think it might be the first one Abby shows up in. Um, Tommy um, is having a hard time, and she goes in, and he, um, because he's just not doing his schoolwork, he's she's his tutor, and he's she knows he can do better. And what's going on, Tommy? You know, like why aren't you? Why aren't you being? You know, why aren't you more successful in? whatever English or whatever class mm-hmm. it is. And she gets that they, they have this really serious conversation. He's just lost his mom and he's, he's going through a really hard time. And she sits and talks with him and says, you know, I recently lost my husband. He was a 49ers player and he died in Vietnam. And so I know what it's like to lose someone you love. So that's one of the first glimpses you get that they're grieving. That's the first piece of information that you get that mom has died. Yeah. And okay. then when they're getting married, like five episodes, six yeah. episodes later, Elizabeth has a really hard time with it because she thinks they're betraying mom, the mom. Mm-hmm. And Nicholas does too. And it's heartbreaking because Nicholas is like, they, dad can't marry Abby because mom's coming back, he keeps saying. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Nicholas, what are you talking about? Mom's not coming back. And he says, yes, she is because she was such a good mom and good moms don't leave their kids forever. And it's just, it breaks your heart. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow, somehow, and I think this is the miracle of casting, somehow Betty Buckley is able to make this work, right? Because I went with it that this mom Mm -hmm. had died and and they suddenly find each other and now five episodes in. So his wife dies and five five episodes later, he's getting married. And I went for it. Yeah, the producers say they wanted a fast transition back to the original storyline of a married couple raising their, I'm using air quotes, their eight children. They wanted to get this whole story back on track. They didn't want to change it now and make it this single dad. So they just did it quickly thinking everyone's going to believe it. And you're right, Kristen, they picked the perfect person they because really she did. was so lovable. Yeah. She yeah. was able to master that so well. Do you guys want to know uh, a weird fact, though? Yes, Betty please. Buckley was only 29, <gasps> um, and Dick Van Patten was 49, and Lori Walters, who plays Joni, was 30. So oh she's older than Betty Buckley. <laughs> yeah. You are About kidding. the same age. Yeah. yeah so Joni, the older. actress, was six months yes. older than her than stepmother. Betty Buckley. Well, and she definitely was not playing a 29-year-old. She had so much authority. And I would have guessed her to be 40. And that when I was watching it recently, I thought, I bet she's in her 30s. Even though I'm giving her the authority of like a maternal figure, a 45-year-old maternal figure who just has really nice skin or something. Yeah. So well, to I know read, that she's 29, that's crazy. Um, I had read that they never actually say her age in the show. 
um, for her character, but they tried to have her be in her mid to late, probably mid thirties, mm-hmm. because she was young enough to be able to relate to the kids and be able to understand their issues. And then yet old enough to be able to also relate to some of Tom's concerns. So she kind of acted as this intermediary, which we see throughout the yeah. series, uh, being able to yeah mm-hmm. navigate and um, facilitate some of those mm-hmm. um, issues and discussions. For me, when I was that age watching you know, middle school, um, I was relating to the characters in the show. Um, and mm-hmm. that's what I think was the magic of that show is the age range of those kids and mm-hmm. that we could all relate to somebody. I mean, a lot of mm-hmm. our generation could relate to somebody. Every, that, there was somebody for everybody. There right. was yeah. well, between mm-hmm. their interests and all of that stuff. Um, and I wanted to chat a little bit about that with you guys to talk about, um, is there anyone, any particular character that you gravitated toward or you felt a connection with? Um, for instance, you might have already guessed that my <laughs> character um, that I felt deeply connected to would be Tommy. Um, he was just a little older than I was. You so wish he- you were deeply connected right. to Tommy. Oh, there you go. That's right. <laughs> Intimately connected. Oh, I didn't mean it like that. Oh, did I, I take it too far? Yes, oh, did. sorry. Michelle, I wasn't thinking it like that. Our listeners know well that that's <laughs> where your brain goes. Anyway, I would have been connected with him any way he would have chosen because. <laughs> okay, <laughs> wait a minute. Okay. Well, you're whatever. leaving that in. Right. Okay. I have boundaries. I don't know about I lo- you. I loved him because you guys, not only was he so cute, let's yeah, say. Yeah, he was I cute. Mean, that's a given. His character was like super sensitive mm-hmm. and really caring. Like, the, yeah. as I mentioned, I think in our Christmas um, episode that we did, that was one of my all-time favorite Christmas-themed episodes was um, when Tommy gets a book that um, – Joan, his mother, had purchased before he died or before she died and wrapped it and had written an inscription on the inside and they find it at Christmas and he gets it and he reads it. And it's a book of poetry, you guys. Oh my God. And she and he reads the inscription and he's crying and I just thought, oh, if I could just hold you, you'd be better. <laughs> it would be okay. If I could just hold but, Yeah. But he had a lot of, of those moments throughout the series where he um, he was the sensitive, feeling, emotional guy. And that was very attractive to me. And he was a he really was- good big brother. He and he took care of that little well, boy. And they were such a good team. But Nicholas he was real. But yeah. he, but like, but like all of these kids, he was real. Cause yeah, he did, he did, um, he was very sweet, sensitive. Carolyn, he took yeah. care of Nicholas, whatever. But at the same time, he pulled some shit and then he yeah, would he yell at Nicholas to get, I mean, he was very real. The writers of this show did such a good job with all these ages of, yeah. I feel like, of making them all really real. They all were perfect kids. They acted like, like they were supposed to act. Yeah. And they got in trouble, and you didn't have – they didn't fall into tropes of the good one and the bad one. No, right? right. It wasn't right. like that. No. They all did all Every the things that Every single one of them had flaws. To yeah. get in trouble. And I like that they – like, they all had flaws, but yet they all were at part of this very loving family. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't one of those shows you ever had to watch being scared of, like, oh, no, what, something terrible is going to yeah. happen. Things happened, but we always knew that the Bradfords were going to work it out. And there was always love in their family, and someone yeah. was always supporting them, and someone was always in their corner. Um, you know, there were plenty of shows you could watch that – there's more of them today, I think – but that make you nervous to watch them. But it is enough. It's never of, like that. They think they have to sell that. 
And isn't that interesting? They think that's what we want to watch. But the truth is we watched Eight is Enough because all of those kids stuck up for each other. Mm-hmm. It was a very democratic household. The kids were very vocal with their parents. They stood up to their parents. They were in on adult conversations. Mm-hmm. And but they and they they fought with their parents, but they always resolved things. And it was just a very egalitarian kind of um it was the opposite of leave it to beaver where you wait till your father gets home mm-hmm. um you know and then ward will come in and set everything straight and you say i'm sorry father that's not how it was they literally hashed things out i mean even the brady bunch was more like you know mike brady is in charge and he will tell you what your punishment is the kids because the kids had a chance and it is enough to push back and i they think did. the kids there mm-hmm. were rules and boundaries set um by tom and then by tom and abby together but the kids always had a chance to challenge those rules. Mm-hmm. And then the consequences were, were kind of real. Sometimes they 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 stuck to the rule, they stuck to the consequence, but sometimes they listened to the kid and they bent the rules. And I think that it just was a really good illustration of um a family that was that really worked well. They were really, really us. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it right. was a much better reflection of the American family with its warts and all. Mm-hmm. Than the other shows that they were trying to sell us. Well, right. it's based on a real family. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's based on an autobiography yeah, of the life of Thomas Braden. Braden, yes. not Bradford. Braden. Okay. And those are the actual names of his kids are mm-hmm. the same as the Bradfords. He did have a son who um, had a run in with the law because of a marijuana issue, um, similar to our pilot episode where Elizabeth has a little run in with the law. And um, my fun little fact is that my brother-in-law's fiance lived in the same neighborhood as the Bradens, and her mother ran over their dog. <laughs> that is not a fun fact. <laughs> well, the, the dog didn't I'm die. Sorry. Oh, the good. Dog didn't okay, die. good. <laughs> yeah. Wait, say that one more time. Your brother-in-law's yeah fiance, fiance. mother. Yeah, she grew up in the neighborhood that the in Bradens. Sacramento. Well, actually, no. This um. And I, we might have to go back over this. Okay. The the family lived in a suburb of D.C. The the Bradens did. Okay. They, they made lived. up the Sacramento part. Okay. So uh, everybody that I knew kind of gravitated toward one character or the other. And I think that was the brilliance of this show is when you have eight at all various ages, everybody had somebody they could mm-hmm. identify with, right? Whether you have your five-year-old, you have your, your 19-year-old, everybody had somebody on the show to watch. So for me, just like... Um, in the episode where we talk about, uh, are you the Mary or the Rhoda? I can't remember what episode number that was. And we sort of decided that I was the Moda. Um, <laughs> I was equal parts Mary and equal parts Rhoda. There are two characters on, on this show that kind of show the two parts of my personality. So the first person that I really connected with was Elizabeth. She's the 15-year-old who's always in the front hall talking on the phone. <laughs> and she, in the first episode, gets arrested because she's been in a car with her boyfriend and, and her boyfriend had weed. So I don't know why that would be attractive to me, but for some reason I really, I, um, I sympathized with her. There was a rebellious part of Elizabeth that I sort of understood. She gets in trouble for not wearing a bra, which is a very 1977 thing mm-hmm. to do. And she's like, oh my God, leave me alone. She's butting up against her parents all the time. She's trying to make her own way without them interfering in her life. She's also the only one... Um, well, besides little Nicholas, but she's the only one who is not going along with this idea that her dad is getting remarried to somebody else. She's mm-hmm. not having it. And everybody else is sort of like, oh, this is so great. We're going to have a wedding. Let's throw her a shower. And Elizabeth is like, hell no, I'm going to mm-hmm. go stay at David's apartment. And she moves out. 
And I totally got that about Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. I would be the brat who would refuse to go to the wedding. Um, Then the second person that I totally get, apparently nobody else likes Mary, (laughs) but I really love Mary. She is the one who's always rallying the troops. She's the spokesperson for the family. She's very, she's pragmatic. She's taking care of business. She's the smarty pants. She's in med school. I always like the smart girl. Um, She was a very outspoken feminist. So when she moves out of the house and she moves in with Don Mm -hmm. Johnson, her new boyfriend, Don Johnson, we has this big handlebar mustache. (laughs) He's like, he's like 17 year old Don Johnson or something. She's like, this is going to be an egalitarian household and I'm not going to do your goddamn dishes, Don Mm -hmm. Johnson. Um, And I really liked that about her. Being pretty is not of any concern to her. That's not her thing. And I always liked the not pretty one too. I don't know what that says about me. But here's another thing that I really liked about Mary is she really considered herself an equal to Tom Bradford. Yeah, she, that's an issue. Right? She really considered <laughs> Carol, herself I know, like that. Her. She wasn't the mother. No, she but was she like, was the, like mother the mother figure because their well, mom was dead. Bossy. She was what like, I think. she was the mother no, figure before, <laughs> before the, the mother one, was she dead. She was the leader. She of was the, the party family. pooper. She always would be. Oh my like, god, the party she, pooper. Yeah, she would throw water on any fun thing that was gonna happen. Would, yeah, that's is, the, that's my pragmatic side. I was the one who was always <laughs> I like safety. I really like safety and I don't like it when people take risks. <laughs> and I'm the one to go in and say, you guys, that's not safe. Yeah. Or we're gonna get in trouble. No, that's 100% me too, but I didn't like Mary. But also when I started watching this, I was really young. I mean, when Mm -hmm. this premiered, I would have only been just turning eight years old. Mm -hmm. Um, But I – my favorite right away of of the family is completely opposite of Mary. But my favorite, hands down, was Nancy. And I loved – well, I loved Nancy and Elizabeth, but Elizabeth mostly because of her hair. Oh, I wanted that long, so thick hair. I know. But she was just so funny and goofy. And I loved her and Tommy's relationship. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth and Tommy were always kind of this dynamic duo that stuck together. But Nancy, to me, you guys, it was just the girliness, just the the hair and the clothes and the ma- she was always putting on makeup when they're trying to do is like they're trying to get out the door. And Nancy's always the one taking so long in the bathroom. And it's almost this caricature of that Barbie head, you yeah. know, that Barbie mm-hmm. styling head we had. Yeah. That's Nancy come to life. I think because yeah. she's like, and it I is think the as same a little here. girl, yeah. But I think as a little girl, and she was just so cute, and she was always with the boyfriends and the jobs and the in and out of that. I just feel like, especially her and Elizabeth, I to me, um, I didn't know any teenagers, and I didn't have like a lot of cousins, or we didn't have babysitters or anything like that. So to me, this was such a glimpse into what teenage girls did. Oh, totally. And so yeah. I mm-hmm. just thought that was the coolest to be. So Mary was a little too old. Oh, for, sure. You know, I'm mm-hmm. eight years old. So Mary's too old and serious. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really like Joni and Susan for different reasons, but f- I just zeroed in on Elizabeth and Nancy because I wanted them to be like my young aunt or my older, yeah. si- like my, I wanted them to be my older sister who was 10 years older than I was. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't, I was a child. And so for that reason, I identified when I watched the show most with Nicholas because he was the baby of the family. Yeah. And I always identified with the babies like Gretel and Sound of Music or Tracy and Partridge Family or Cindy and the Brady Bunch. Those were always my favorite characters. And I think because Nicholas was more my actual age at the time I was watching Eight is Enough, the things he was doing and the things he was going through were things I could actually get and identify. I couldn't identify with all the dating and the new right. jobs and the moving out with the boyfriends. I thought that was super cool. 
But um, Nicholas, to me, was just kind of the little kid who was picked on. I had an older sister, only three, and I have an older sister, only three and a half years older. So it wasn't the same, but I definitely at that age, age eight, was the little, the annoying little sister. Nobody really, you know, I wanted to do the things that my older sister was doing, but she didn't want to do those things with me. So I got Nicholas more. It's Nicholas writing all the, um, you know, writing all the chain letters and thinking he's responsible for Tommy's near death, you know, ruptured spleen. Um, Yeah. That's how I learned what a spleen was. Yeah, it's Nicholas. Um, Nobody's paying attention to Nicholas, so he accidentally starts the fire in the house, and then still no one's paying attention to him, so he runs away to San Diego and lives with Sam and, you know, panhandles (laughs) on the beach for two days before anyone realizes he's gone. Because (laughs) the lady- Grandpa Walton. Because, you know, that's right. Because, of course, in 19, what, that was season three, so 1981, no- 1980, of course a lady at the Sacramento bus station is going to sell a tiny kid a one-way ticket to San Diego. (laughs) Happens all the time. All the time. Yeah. And then the policeman even comes up when when they figure out he's gone and the policeman says, well, we found his wagon at the the bus station. And he says, and nobody's really that worried. They're all like, we haven't seen Nicholas. No one's seen Nicholas in three days. Well, where do you think he is? Look under the bed. (laughs) And the policeman says- Found this at the at the bus terminal. The lady down there says she someone who matched Nicholas' description. She remembers selling him a bus ticket to San Diego. <laughs> oh like, my god! She he's eight. <laughs> Latchkey children. So Latchkey he goes children. to. So it's those ones yeah. that I remember the most. You know, I and and the ones with Nancy. Nancy was always getting mm-hmm. a new job, or she was always dating someone new. Yeah. Um. So those are the ones that um, I think stuck with me because those characters I just loved. And I did not, when we first started talking about doing this show, we're all super enthusiastic about Eight is Enough, but when we start talking about episodes, I literally cannot come up with a single plot line. I can't come up with one episode. And I started questioning myself, like, well, you did like this show, didn't you? How come you can't remember any of this? And then, of course, once people started bringing them up, I was like, oh, yes, when Tommy wants to run for prom queen and when Susan marries Merle the Pearl, the baseball player. And (laughs) I did remember that stuff. But what I figured out is that the reason I didn't remember the plot lines is because that's not what the show was about. The show was not about what happened. The show was about the people. Mm -hmm. We -hmm. were invested in all of those characters and who they were. Not, you know, here's the problem in the first act, and then it gets resolved in the last act. That's not why we were watching. No, Although I they agree. did tackle some real heavy issues. Oh, absolutely they did. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite, well, I shouldn't say one of my favorite, because I, pro- I wouldn't have remembered it if I hadn't rewatched it, probably. But um, crazy enough, they have an episode, um, I think it's season two or the end of season one. But it's called Quarantine. Oh my and god! They oh yeah! Think because Mary maybe kissed a, um, a medical student that had been on a mission <laughs> trip to Africa and he had a fever and was in the hospital now. That they might have this rare African disease that was super contagious, so they have to quarantine everyone that was in the house at a specific time, which included the real dorky red-haired guy that was going on a date with Nancy, and he isn't allowed and matching to leave. shirts. Yes. <laughs> And um, so you, but at the same time, you get a glimpse of these characters. So Nancy is like disgusted with this dorky, and I wish I remembered his name, this um, guy who's stuck with them for, at the time, it seems like it's going to be two weeks. It seems like a long time. Um, but they get to know each other. And by the end of the quarantine, they're they're going on dates. They're mm-hmm. kind of close. Um, and it's funny to watch because David is the one who's not under quarantine. So he can do all like 
get them food. And so he has to deliver it on the porch and then he has to stand like six feet or long further away. We can totally relate to that food getting yeah, right. off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I just thought that was a re- really funny episode to watch now, con- you know, and, obviously with the stuff we're right. doing. They're doing their schoolwork in uh-huh. the living room and all that. The meaning is totally different watching it today than when we oh. watched it the first time around. Totally, yeah. totally. Are there that any something characters? outlandish. Are there any characters that you guys didn't like? I said a couple that I didn't like. What about you guys? Yes, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> but for obvious reasons, right? Like, so I don't the, know. What the are reasons they? the reasons that you like Nancy that she's so adorable much are the, she was are too the reasons adorable? I didn't like her. It's only because <laughs> those were not the things that like I uh, those were not parts of my person, right? Yeah. The being pretty thing was not. I didn't. I didn't, re- I'm trying to think of how to say this. I didn't respond to that. It didn't make sense mm-hmm. to me. I always looked to the tomboy. Um, I didn't like it when people were really concerned about makeup and hair and things like that. Cause I kind of had my nose in a book all the time. And so Mary, the med student, even though I'm not a sciencey person at all, is that a word? Sciencey? Um, <laughs> <It is now. laughs> that made more sense to me. So mm-hmm. I didn't understand her as a person. And then I also didn't like Susan because of her bangs. The bangs really yeah. bothered me. Susan. And also she was into sports and I wasn't into sports either. It sounds like all I do is read books. Um, but one other character I want to bring up, and I'm going to forget her name right now, but as soon as I saw her when I rewatched, was um, Tom's secretary at the newspaper. <gasps> yes. yes. Her name's Donna, isn't it? Yes, it's Donna. Yes. Donna yes. was, I, I love, love Donna. Donna. Is Donna, Donna the great. wife and She's the an mom MVP. from... Um, too close for comfort. No, she looks similar okay. to her though. That okay. is, um, oh crap! Nancy, what is that lady's name? Nancy Dussault. Duval. Dussault. Dussault. Something Frenchy with a D. It's Dussault, yeah. I think. Okay. You guys, wait. There's also one other character we need to we need to talk about. Oh yes, we do. Doesn't show up until season right. five, but he's around the whole season. <laughs> it's Oliver. I don't know if we call him it. <laughs> it's it's the Oliver Bradford of Eight Is Enough, and that is Ralph Macchio pre pre Karate Kid. Pre Daniel LaRusso, and he shows up because in episode one of season five, Abby's, stay with me now, everybody, ready? Mm-hmm. Here we go. We're doing a flow chart. Abby's sister in law, so the sister of her dead husband who died in Vietnam, has, di- has died, and her son is Jeremy. So it's Abby's nephew, but like by marriage, mm-hmm. and Jeremy's dad is out of the picture. The grandparents aren't able to care for Jeremy, so Abby calls Tom real quick, and she just basically it's one of those phone calls where you hear Tom go, "Uh huh, oh, oh, <laughs> foster care, oh no, Abby, that's fine." Well, the big question I want to know is if they really accepted Jeremy into their family, did they give him a bathrobe? Because every single person yes. in that family yes. had a bathrobe, and yeah, anytime I was in the evening, they always would have them on before they would. Well, and it's because you have to stand in line for the bathroom. And so there's there's an awful lot of standing in line for the bathroom where there will be like four people standing in line. Mm -hmm. Which I don't understand in a house that size how you only have one bathroom. Okay, so I had – when I started rewatching, first of all, the first time I I queue up one of those OG episodes, walking into that house for the first time in 40 Hmm. years Mm. felt like coming home. It was profound. That feeling of walking into that foyer and the the halt the little foyer telephone and the green shag carpeting, it felt like deja vu. But the the thing that I kept noticing as I was watching is that this show is such a time capsule. There were so many little cultural touchstones along the way, things that you 
I mean, yes, all old shows have, you know, a telephone on the wall and things like that. But there were so many more things that were just of the moment. Mm-hmm. And so exactly. I literally started making a list. So there's David's VW bus and then Tom's Woody station wagon, right? Can you say 1977? Mm-hmm. Totally. Mm-hmm. Nicholas's banana seat bike. Mm-hmm. There were so many typewriters in that I show. I have all these things. Those are all the first things on my list. Oh, really? Yeah. I have it right here. Green wall to wall carpet. Yes, the green carpet. Then they changed, it changed to brown. Oh, that's a bummer. Um, okay, so many typewriters on Tom's desk. And mm-hmm. part of it is Tom's job because he's a writer. He's a mm-hmm. columnist, right? So he's got a typewriter at home. He's got a typewriter at the office. There's a big Rolodex on his desk. <laughs> Okay, you took all the stuff on my list except for two things. Can I say something? Yeah, please. I thought it was funny on Tommy and Nicholas's wall. They have a big Darth Vader poster. Oh, That's they do? That's one thing I noticed. Yeah, it's over Nicholas. It's over the first bed by the door. I think everybody slept in that bed, but I think that was t- Nicholas's. Was that Nicholas's bed? That wasn't been Nicholas's because over mm-hmm. Tommy's is Fonzie, a Fonzie oh, right. poster. And then there's an episode where um, one of the girls' boyfriend, could be anyone, fill in mm-hmm. the blank with the name of any of the girls. She's there, and she's ripping his posters down, and it's the Farrah Fawcett poster. <gasps> with the which swimsuit. Which I thought was awesome. Yeah. Okay. I that Again, was hello, funny. 1977, right? And I also see um, Nicholas running around um, the first first two seasons where he's got that football helmet on. Yeah. I see that as a very cultural reference thing. Like, I feel like little boys back yes. in the 70s yes. ran around with football helmets on. Is that, am I wrong? I don't I mean, see that in my neighborhood like now. See that. I no. don't see that. No. That is true. Nobody gets a football helmet for Christmas anymore, I don't think. Is that a I thing? I don't know. Yeah. And that I used to be a big that. Christmas present. Well, it was like a toy. It was a toy. Well, yeah, now now a kid yeah. would look at it and be like, what do I want that for? Yeah, um, okay, the phone in the in the front hallway was a big cultural touchstone for me. First of all, it's got the curly cord, right? But the mm-hmm. fact that they have this one phone in this central location, and they had all these teenagers in the house that would just camp out in the front hall. Uh, well, I was impressed with the touchstones that they wove into the dialogue. I could... so. They made these characters so relatable. They would say, you know, Elizabeth would say something like, oh, you won't be going out Saturday night. You'll be home watching Love Boat. Um, Or they would talk about Starsky and Hutch, Mm -hmm. which coincidentally, one of the writers um, from Eight is Enough also wrote for Starsky and Hutch. And it was only ABC shows, but they would always weave those into the dialogue. I wonder if they were doing that on purpose. I love that. I'm sure they were for several weeks. But again, because we could relate, it's like, I was watching Love Boat on Saturday night too. Mm -hmm. Okay. At Abby's... Um, at Abby's wedding shower, I can't get this out. Okay, there's an, somebody takes a picture with an Instamatic camera at Abby's wedding shower, and it looks so funny for them to pick up this little rectangle thing and like look <laughs> at it with their eye like yeah. this. Yeah, with the um, the Lance nightgowns, and again, we know the Lance nightgowns because they're all standing in line for the bathroom. But the Lance nightgowns were these flannel nightgowns with these kind of European stripe floral designs, mm-hmm. and there was a, a yoke around it, and then it had elastic mm-hmm. on the wrist that I hated. They had those little plastic jugs of juice that you'd get at Sunday school, and you'd like peel the tin foil (laughs) off the top, and it was always like purple juice or something like that. (laughs) That seems shocking because that would be real expensive for a family of eight. Wouldn't you just get a jug of high C? You would think that you would just get your church key and open your can Mm -hmm. of high C. They had a, hmm. There was an awful lot of juice and milk at that table, which makes oh, me yeah. understand my mom so much more because my mom is always thinking that my son doesn't drink enough milk. And she's always trying to give him juice at breakfast. And we're like, <laughs> well, he doesn't really like milk. And I don't know if you've heard about juice, but, you know, 
You're not supposed to give your babies juice anymore. Juice has been canceled. Right. We canceled juice a long time ago. And my mom is thinking that we've done something wrong. So you can see in the Mm -hmm. 70s, we drank juice and milk. Okay. Tommy's room was such a treasure trove. We've already talked about the Darth Vader poster, the Fonzie poster. He also has one of those Velcro dart games on his wall where they had those little balls covered Uh with with Velcro that you would throw. Uh And Mm -hmm. this is the most important one, I think. He had a hamster habit trail. In his room. Mm -hmm. Does anyone have a habit trail anymore? Oh, yeah. My daughter just, well, her hamster that died a few years ago, we had one. So when when people Mm -hmm. buy hamsters today, do they still get a habit trail? And is it yellow? Mm -hmm. And is it called a habit trail? It's now hers was rainbow, but it's the same exact thing where she had the tubes that went up and then the little ball and then it connected. You could buy more connectors to it. Yeah. I said something to Liam the other day about, oh, my God, it's like a freaking habit trail in here. He's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's a habit trail. All I ever wanted was a hamster and a habit trail. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they didn't have them at Sears. Okay, I have one last one. And that okay. is at Abby's wedding shower, the phone rings. Somebody picks it up and says, Abby, it's for you. It's long distance. And so then Abby <laughs> runs because, of course, it's going to be expensive. Somebody's paying right. for that. And then so she chit-chats with this person for a minute. And then she says, oh, didn't you get my letter? And it just occurred what? to me that nobody would ever say that in a show today. I know. Did you, say, you get, did you get my, my email? Or did you get my text? Right. Oh. Not if Carolyn has anything to do with I it. I know. Right. Come on, Nothing Jack Carolyn. That's right. Well, I want to bring up um, another uh, thing that stuck out to me was in the first season when um, Tom's best friend, the doctor, mm-hmm. um, ha- it separates from his wife for a little bit. Mm-hmm. He moves in with them, with the Bradfords, and... Sleeps in, I think it's the screen porch, in, isn't it? No, I think he sleeps in Tom's room. Oh, with Tom? Oh, well. Because, <laughs> yeah, because they make a whole little thing. The kids are like, there's someone up with dad. It must be season two because mom is not in the picture. It's and Dr. They think Max. That, yeah. They think that they don't know it's Dr. Max. They think dad has someone over and they're all very curious about it. And oh, they go upstairs he does go to listen oh, and they all like yeah. fall in the bedroom to, to figure that out. But anyway, they go out clubbing, you know, and they're like their leisure suits. <laughs> and their leisure suits. And they get have a lot to drink and they drive. <gasps> they drive home oh. and they're intoxicated. They they do that in they still do that on TV shows though. It really bugs me. They do. Well, this to is the, oh, pretty yeah. acceptable. Like they would I mean, he's a doctor. And yeah, you know, yeah Dr. Max should would, know better. Yeah. There was no um, mad. Anyway. There was no mothers against drunk driving in no, 1977. It wasn't even you on know the what's radar. funny? When uh, that episode you talked about way at the beginning, um, Kristen, at Tom's bachelor party, when they're all just yeah. so drunk, all I'm thinking as I'm watching it, I'm getting very nervous. Like, you know, a month ago when I was watching this episode going, okay, there's no Uber. No. He, they better put his butt in a cab and send him home because if he, I'm going to be real mad if Tom drives home. No, you know who drives him home? The lady the stripper. from the cake. <laughs> okay, you guys. You know how I love to do a little extra research every now and then. Well, of course, I did some for eight is enough and went down a deep rabbit hole. Carolyn is a good researcher, but Uh she's so good that she has a lot of information that would take up the entire episode. So we're going to give her a time. We're going to give her a time period. It is. Uh It's really, it's all good stuff. It's called Carolyn's rabbit hole for Uh a reason. Because when you start to research, one thing leads to another Uh and you dig yourself a giant rabbit hole of things that you have to share with us. It's truly one of Carolyn's many superpowers. It is. And so we've decided that maybe occasionally this season and in the future, we're going to have a segment called Carolyn's Rabbit Hole, where we're going to give Carolyn a set amount of time 
and she has to spout <laughs> off as many of the facts as she discovered while in the rabbit hole researching whatever we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm going to set my timer, Carolyn, and I'm going to tell you when to go. And then you're okay. going to share with us all of this research that you found, okay? Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Carolyn's Rabbit Hole. Okay. Go. Did you guys know that Eight is Enough and the Waltons are both Lorimar Productions filmed on the same lot and they were canceled at the same time? Oh. oh. I know. Um, so many guest stars that paraded through um, our mm-hmm. show, but through Eight is Enough. I'm going to tell you some of them because it's pretty exciting. We had Adrian Barbeau. We had Charlene <gasps> Tilton. She was yes. Wendy Springer who stole Willie Ames's heart. And bitch. Adrian Barbeau, she wore gauchos. She did. No time and for you, Kristen. Um, Continue. I know. Caroline. Sorry. Don, yes, you're taking away from my minute. Um, we've already said Don Johnson. My gosh, you guys, Miss Beetle was on there. Charlotte Stewart was on Eight is Enough. So was Will Gear, which I guess he just had to hop over from the Walton set and he could just come onto the <laughs> Eight is Enough set and pop and do that. And then we had Ken Berry, who, you know, he was on Brady Bunch and also had his own trumpet. That was Ken Berry. And then he did Kenny Shoe commercials. Remember those? Oh, that's um, right. Yes. Robin Williams, he he was on there. So was Gerald McCraney. So was Corey Feldman, Donnie Benedu- Danny Bonaducci, Rosanna Arquette, Missy Gold, Marky Post. And I could go on, but I'll stop there. Oh, Peter Horton. <gasps> oh, shoot. Is that <laughs> let's me? give her another, let's give her another, like, at least 15, 20. Okay. <laughs> a couple more facts. Okay. So my boyfriend, Willie Ames, he had a difficult time after he went from there, from eight is enough to Charles in charge and drugs and alcohol and all that. And for a short time, he was a cruise director on a, um, on a cruise ship. I know. And then. Oh, my God. I know. Um, and then Lainey O'Grady, you know what? Her brother, it was uh, Dan Grady, a.k.a. Robbie do we know? Not know. Robbie <gasps> Douglas uh, my three from sons? My Three Sons. Yes. Stop oh. it. And, uh, yes. So that was her brother and their mother Wait, was okay, a Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Lane, Mary is yes. the sister. We're not timing this now because I'm because yeah. okay. no. I'm pooping my pants. You've just, yeah, you've just screwed right. it all up. The rules are going <laughs> to be laid down next episode, The rabbit holes are very Kristen. important. Yes, it is. <laughs> this is yes, more is. evidence for the, yes, my rabbit okay, hole. Okay. So wait, Chip, right? It's Chip. Is that correct? No, Robbie. Robbie. Robbie, the older one. So Mary Bradford and Robbie Douglas. Douglas. I couldn't remember their last name. Our sister and brother. Yes. Dang. Okay. Yes. And their right. mother is was a famed uh, child talent agent in LA. So okay. that was probably oh, how that's they, a good fact. Um, yeah. So that and sadly we'll find out Laney died um, from a drug overdose in 2001. And he had drugs, no fun. Adam Rich had a few issues, and he went so far as to um, consent to having a story published in the San Francisco magazine um, that he was murdered, and he went Wait, along what? with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you guys, Susan Richardson. Oh, her story is mm-hmm. it could literally be a whole just, episode. Just everyone, Google Susan Richardson and Google image a current picture. It's so so sad. It is sad. It's so sad. Just read, just read the headlines in her story. Everybody, yeah, it's it's really sad. Yeah. Well, yes, and I I mean a lot of them have sad stories, but hers. Well, the rabbit hole that going following up with um, from Adam Rich's story about how he was murdered. She kind of created a story (laughs) that she was kidnapped by North Korean (laughs) filmmakers and they tried to murder her. So, and she got photographed like dumpster diving, and yeah, she lives in a trailer. Wow. We said we weren't going to talk about this, but <laughs> there are anyway. lots of trailers in Child Stars. Lives. Yes, which I think we've discussed the fact that we could talk about this forever. We're going to devote an episode in the future of Pop Culture Preservation Society to some of the sad child 
star stories and mm-hmm. what happened to Tra- a lot of tragedies. tragedies. Well, it wasn't all tragic for the Bradfords. No. No, like shortly after Betty Buckley, who had had success on Broadway before Eight is Enough, quickly went on to win a Tony Award in 1983 for Grizabella and Cats. Yeah, and then she had more. That's big. Yeah, and that's that's when Cats was huge. Now Cats was almost like eye roll, but that's when Cats was big. (laughs) And then very more success in the years um, on stage following. Still to this day, she's 71 and she still has success on stage. Yeah. Way to go, Betty. I know. I mean, are we surprised, Abby? No. No. And what about Tom? Did he go on to do anything? Yes, he did. (laughs) (laughs) He is his own line of dog food. (laughs) What? That is not that is not a lie. If you go what? to PetSmart right now, you can go. Is it called Nutris? I was gonna say Nutra Sweet. It's like Nutra Balance or something like that. And right above the logo, it says Dick Van Patten's. I'm not lying. It says Dick Van Patten's dog food. Yeah, it's natural balance. There. Natural balance. That's what it is. Yeah. I don't know why it was Tom founded, Bradford made dog food. Well, it was founded in 1989 by Dick Van Patten. I don't in know 1989? why. 1989? Mm-hmm. So that's only, a f- that's only how many years after this was like over? Like eight or years? Mm-hmm. Or eight. Well, um, they didn't even have a dog. The Bradfords didn't have a pet. <laughs> no, they didn't. There was no tiger. Oh, yeah. Huh. Well, way to go. Dick, and way to leave a legacy. Yeah. That's right. For all Still our buy puppies. your dog food at PetSmart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no doubt that Eight is Enough played a huge part in our Gen X childhoods. Clearly, we could talk about this for a long, long time, but that's all we have time for today. But if you have thoughts or feelings about Eight is Enough, like who was your Eight is Enough twin? Who is the person that you connected with the most? please connect with us. Send us a message. Yeah, we love hearing from you guys. And if you enjoy our conversations, we would love you forever. If you'd subscribe and leave us a nice review and click those stars because it helps more people find us. And we hope you're following along on social media. Just search Pop Culture Preservation Society to find us. Share our posts and tag us so we can thank you. Yes, and we really hope that you will join us next time when we chat all things fashion and those super 70s styles. In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast, courtesy of our favorite roommates, Jack, Janet, and Chrissy, to good times, to happy days, to Little House on the Prairie. Cheers. Cheers. Information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to me, the Crushologist, and Carolyn and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, I guess there's always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded at Modern Well, a woman-centered co-working space in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. We get a happy feeling when we're singing a song